1: The put on their So piece final with the one problem that the fans actually wanted to attend. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the on Twitter, Yankee Gunner, Uh, back on the road, traveling. And uh, this trip, one that was planned pre-pandemic for a group of friends to celebrate uh, a birthday milestone and now has been moved post-pandemic. But uh, I thought it was a little bit inconsiderate of them to do it right after I had only just gotten back uh, from being in London. So I don't know where in the world I am. I don't know when in the world I am, but I know I'm here speaking to you right now just about. Uh, Today, we're going to talk a little Champions League final, and we're also going to talk about... What it's realistic to expect Arsenal to achieve, not just in the next season, but in the near future, in the context of how the game is changing and the money the game is changing. Because I think when we try to think about who should we sign and how should we build and what is the project and how many years, the thing we sometimes forget is it's not just up to Arsenal. You know, I think you can see that pretty clearly with Liverpool because in one way, They are going through a period of unprecedented success in the Premier League, and yet that unprecedented success has yielded a single title. Is that through a fault of their own, through poor squad building? Well, of course not. It's because of the titanic amounts of money being funneled into Manchester City in the same time period. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but first I should do the most professional part of the job, which is to introduce the people that are actually here to listen to. One of them is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stobardoe. Hello, Tim
2: hello there welcome welcome to my birdhouse
1: <laughs> yeah i mean look if you could see the condition in which i'm recording uh it would make your birdhouse look like i don't know like the the most famous music studios imaginable so uh, i think we are all getting it done as they say uh clive's on twitter at clive pfc hello clive hello 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 how are you 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 are in your normal recording environment so at least i am at least we have how do, have do, I your here. Do, do i sound do i okay? sound okay sound brilliant as always Excellent. um Tim, I want to start with you because you've had a little bit of experience with this, and Clive, you have as well. Uh, Not to suggest that you haven't, but it was an interesting situation to watch unfold in real time on television with the Champions League final because there was rumor of incidents taking place outside the ground that would delay the the start of the game. And I had the weird scenario where I'm sitting at a bar in an airport with a flight coming up and I had really timed this flight to coincide with the Champions League final, and I see the 15-minute delay first announced and the, the rumors of incident outside the ground, and you go on Twitter, and there's the inevitable sort of tribal response of, oh, Liverpool fans, right? And even, I think, on the broadcast I was watching, they were getting into the moralizing about fan behavior. As the information continued to develop, and more on-the-ground reporting was coming in, it does certainly sound like the handling of the gates, the inflow of attendees into the ground, the behavior of the police in dealing with the large number of fans outside the ground contributed to what was really unfortunate, ruined the day for some people, I think became quite dangerous. And I think people have started to update their priors on you know who's to blame and why. But I'm curious first just about your experience with UEFA putting on these finals, not seeming to understand that real fans actually want to attend them, how they behave, and then the policing that goes along with that.
2: Yeah, 100%. So I, I'm not surprised at all by what happened. <clears throat> my my experience of the two UEFA finals I've been to with Arsenal in 2006-2019 was that the organization was really shambolic, more so in 2019 in Baku. Um, I also went to the Euros um, semi-final um, between England and Denmark. And to be fair, I kind of go a bit lighter on that because there was the added complication of COVID checks and things like that. And it was the first time that really a crowd that big had gathered anywhere um, in well over a year. So I'm more inclined to give that a bit of a pass. But what happens at UEFA finals is... The fans, first of all, what we see is the allocations are minuscule, are completely, completely not appropriate for finals. And that does things like, yep, yeah, it accelerates the black market yeah, and it makes people vulnerable to things like fake tickets and things like that. So that is much, much more likely to happen. Don't, like, Don't get me wrong, if each team had 100,000 tickets each, that would still happen to some extent, but not nearly the same extent. UEFA know that their ticketing policy creates a very, very thriving black market. And you will have seen um, stuff on Twitter probably in the days leading up to the final about people being scammed, people being scammed for travel as well as tickets like Like, people understand the desperation of fans to go to something like a Champions League final and they exploit it. UEFA know this happens. They don't give a fuck. What happens when you go to these finals, you understand very quickly that you as a fan, even though, like, the face value of these tickets is around about £500, they are priced extortionately. Like, you really, really pay for this. But you probably don't well you're not worth as much to the to uefa as the people who get in for free essentially those are the people that are looked after so in baku for example one thing i always do or sorry i've done at the two finals i've been to is do a recce of the stadium the day before the game so i go um find out what the journey's like, where do I go from the tube station, where's my gate. And the reason I do that is because I know UEFA or the organisers will not take care of this at all. You are completely on your own when you get there. So at the very least, I like to know the lie of the land. And, you know, I'll give you my experience in Baku. Me and uh, my mate, also called Tim, we went on the morning of the game because we, like, the city of Baku had been shambolic really um in the day or two leading up to the game and there were things like that you know uefa like that they kind of bust in loads of people to drive taxis because they're not used to like um you know understandably not used to like um influxes of people coming into the cities so they bust in people to drive taxis who didn't know the city and didn't know where they were going so you know, we we did stuff like we arrived like, you know, seven, eight hours before kickoff just to do a recce. And there were people like, you know, volunteers, helpers, whatever you want to call them. We got to the metro station. We were like, right, um, went up to someone who was working, kind of said, oh, which is the best exit to go to get to the Arsenal enclosure? Don't know. <laughs> we got there. We were like, where's the Arsenal enclosure? Don't know. And we were a bit frustrated. We were like, how can you not know this? And the guy said to us very clearly, we've only been told where the neutral and hospitality sections are.
1: Oh, well, you know, the the, pe- the important people,
2: Tim. <laughs> yeah, Not yeah. the peasants who and, actually care about football. <laughs> and that's the thing, like the Arsenal and Chelsea fans, albeit not many of them because of where the game was hosted, were shoved into the corners of the ground that were the, that were the least accessible, that were the furthest away from the metro station. So we went around, we're like, where's our gate? There's our gate for later. Okay, we know where we're going now. And we were told that there'd be some buses afterwards to take us back to the city centre, which to be fair, there were, and they were plentiful, albeit like I say, because of where the final was, there weren't many people there. And we asked uh, someone around the stadium, where are the buses leaving from after the game? Don't know. So we had to go and find that out for ourselves. And so essentially, like those you will not be taken care of as a quote-unquote fan paying punter. The, the fortune in Baku was that it was so sparse that there wasn't an opportunity for crushes or anything like that. The other thing we had in Baku, I promise this is true, for 6,000 Arsenal fans, there was one kiosk, refreshment kiosk, with three people serving And uh, they hadn't pre-poured pints or anything like that. So it it was shambolic and, and most UEFA events are like that. So I'm not surprised at all. And then when that happens, when the inevitable shambles unfolds because UEFA haven't done their bit, you are in the hands of the local police. And it just depends what those local police are like and what attitude they take towards, you know, English football fans in, in the case of an English team. Um, I don't really know what they think of like Italian football fans and what their experiences are, but in, in the case of the French police, it's, it's not exactly light touch. And essentially what UEFA do is they don't take care of the little details like signage, like, where do I go? How do I get in? Where's my gate? And, and then that puts you square into the hands of the police. And basically, if you're lucky, they're indifferent to you. And if you're unlucky, they are practically violent towards you. Um, and it just depends where you are. And on this occasion, it looks to me very much like the Liverpool fans were put in a place where they were in the hands of the local police who had contempt for them. Um, and so th- that's what you get.
1: Yeah. And to be fair, if you know football twitter who's you know filled with fans of premier league clubs start pointing fingers at the fans as their first reaction you know the police who don't have any potential connection either to football supporters or english football supporters or liverpool specifically football supporters yeah it's going to get bad pretty quick there's a number of angles that i think are interesting here and not just as it relates to liverpool but to football generally and even to arsenal but clive i think you've you've had specific paris experiences that might be relevant and i'm curious if this is an area um, that might have a particular issue hosting these kind of events?
3: Oh, yes. <laughs> I'll tell you, Paris is a beautiful place, but it's a place I never want to go back to because of the experiences that I've had. I was there for the uh, nine from the halfway line final in 95, and I went as a bit of a lad, you know, just went over, literally had no no luggage, just 24 cans of stellar under my arm. Off we went across the, to um, to France, and basically... It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Honestly, um, getting into the ground was awful. Getting out of the ground, they took us to a part of town that we didn't know, and we got tear gas on the way out. Tear gas all through the game. Tear gas. It was just like terrible. Absolutely terrible, really heavy-handed, even to a point where I nearly had to sleep rough. I've never been in a situation like that before, and I swore I'd never go back. But of course, in 2006, I also get to the European Cup final. You can't miss it, right? So this time I went um, in a slightly different way. I got a bit more money on me, so I stayed in a lovely hotel in France, had a couple of days out there. Nice. And... And it was beautiful. You know, I stayed in the hotel where the Diamond Club members were staying. So it was a completely different experience until you get to the game. And you get to the game. <laughs> oh, no. And the very same thing happened. Look so what happened to Liverpool fans. Held outside. In fact, I did a tweet at the weekend where you could see people climbing over that fence and jumping in. Well, in, in Paris 2006, there was an Arsenal fan. I think as was an Arsenal fan tried to jump over and got caught in a very unfortunate place on those spikes and empowered himself on on those and that offence, and I said that tweet. I thinking no one would remember, but loads of people came back. They did remember, and it was a very similar experience getting in. We got in eventually, and again getting out. You just have to get out. And the French police are just—they're just, just right, police mate. There's no there's no shaking hands. How are you, lads? Mate, they're, they're fully tooled up and they're ready to go. And it, the whole thing regarding English football fans means. You you are seen as the worst people on earth, and you just got to keep your head down and get away from it. So, two terrible experiences. I, Liverpool fans, due to their history with Hillsborough, etc., it seemed as though they were extremely well aware of how to behave outside the turnstile. Extremely well aware, more aware than any. Fan in the world because of their previous experiences, how they would be perceived if something happened, and even though they got there early and behaved appropriately, they were treated like rubbish. And I, don't, I, I really do feel for them because it just completely ruins the whole experience of getting to these big games. And I will say, and Tim will remember this from two thousand and six, when you're in the stadium, you've, you 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 almost this is the moment of your life, your football life. You hope it's going to be. And you look up there, and you see, well, eighty, ninety thousand Australian, wherever it was, and you see at least fifty-five thousand dark suits, and you just think, what's this all about? Do you know what I mean? Honestly, there's nobody there that's a, a true fan. I think I also had seventeen thousand a day you got to Paris, something like that, and and same for Barcelona, and it's just all suits on the side, and you, it's just all about advertising and money making, and. I wouldn't have missed it for the world because you can't miss the chance to see the Arsenal European Cup you just can't miss it but at a bit of me thinking I could have just hired a restaurant with 10 of my good mates and sat there and, and watched the game on the big screen it's hard it's hard because they make it hard to go they make it a bad experience and um yeah. And I said, I'll never go back to Paris, but I'm, you know, if I also get there, I'm sure I will. Right. But it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not a good place to be when it comes to football. No way. No way.
1: Yeah. And if anybody's listening who is Parisian or been there or from there, I, I lived there briefly. I loved it. I loved the city. Um, I, once I got my French into a suitable condition, I enjoyed the people. Um, but it, you know, there's a difference between that and how they handle the football supporters and like, Uh, it's so interesting watching a story be reported in real time, both on TV and on Twitter, because I I think, um, you know, like I said, I was watching from the airport. So all I had was the captions. I wasn't really listening, but it definitely seemed like the initial reporting was sort of your typical looking down the nose at the fan and blaming it on the fan and, and tutting the behavior. And then it started to evolve as reports were coming out about what was really happening and seeing some really great reporters and fans on the scene on Twitter quote, tweeting, misreporting, and and UEFA's sort of state media about fans with fake tickets or fans trying to jump the turnstiles and saying, no, no, here's what's happening here, or this video you're seeing is being misrepresented – and in that respect, it was really helpful to kind of get a sense of what was actually happening. One of the funny things that I saw, you know, is videos of, of people jumping the fences and the reporting being like, oh, look at these shameful Liverpool fans. And it's people in like white t shirts and five different French designer labels on. And I'm like, mate, I don't think those are the Liverpool fans. Um,
3: That's what's changed, though, Elliot, right? In the old days, back when I used to go a lot more away games, that reporting would have stuck. But now everyone's got a phone and everyone's got a Twitter account and everyone can clarify things very, very quickly. And mm. and honestly, and I always go to football a lot when Hillsborough did happen and also we know what happened there with the government blaming um, Liverpool fans, etc. And it took years and years and years to clear the reputation. And that can't happen anymore because everybody can see. And um, so... The French shaming of Liverpool fans, it was quickly, quickly, they had to retract. And it would be very interesting what happens if there is an inquiry or will it be just swept under the carpet?
2: I think I know which – yeah, go ahead, please. I I was just going to say, and and can I – like, I think we should add as well that um, I think lots of people had bad experiences coming out of the stadium as well. And obviously, again, like, to to apply your caveat, Elliot, about Paris, like – like, obviously it's, it's a wonderful city, but like every other big city, there are parts of it. And, you know, look, I've lived in Southeast London pretty much all of my life. I've seen them and grown up in, in areas here that, you know, I wouldn't advise you to walk around at night, but like Saint Denis in Paris is, you know, I I remember when we went in 2006, you know, we were warned like, because there are two different Metro stations that can take you to the stadium. Now from now, um, Real Madrid fans used Saint-Denis, um, which I think was slightly closer to their gate as well, which is and also their fan park was much closer to the stadium, which is why I think you didn't see as many issues in their end. And from memory, I think that might have been the end we had, because I think I came into Saint-Denis Metro station, and you know, again, Parisians listening, I'm sure. Um, will will probably nod their heads and I hope not think I'm negatively stereotyping their city when I say Saint Denis is not a great area. And I know there are a lot of um a lot of people who were kind of mugged and things like that on the way out. And like the police made that situation more likely because they made all the walkways so narrow and they bottlenecked people and they just made them sitting ducks. And obviously like local intel knew that that was going to happen or at least knew that it happened before the game and thought, ah, there's going to be 20,000 people coming through a little narrow passage here. And uh, yeah, and I know a lot of people had negative experiences afterwards and, and I think largely due to the way it was policed.
1: Yeah, and, and let's be clear, right? If you, <clears throat> even if you want to take the most charitable view to UEFA in terms of the problems before the game, which I'm I'm not prepared to do, but I'm saying even if you want to, Leaving the stadium, those are all fans that have a right to be in there who needed to leave, and UEFA would have known that. And so any issues that they encountered on the way out is certainly due to poor planning. So there's no escape there. There, There's two really—first of all, I think— the, the clear and obvious solution here is that Virgin Galactic finally gets their ass together so that they can put this thing on the moon and not have to have fans there and just have executive travelers on Virgin Galactic. So that will fix that. Um, but Tim, in the wake of this, the thing that inevitably happens is that football tribalism, one of the great parts of the game and one of the things I enjoy as much as anything, becomes a shield to prevent those in power from being held to account. Because our willingness to say, oh, it's Liverpool fans or you know, laugh at their loss or whatever the case may be and not be able to unify is really the protection that UEFA needs to keep getting away with this shit. And I'm curious how you sort of respond to some of the re- reaction you might see or some of the typical tribal reactions that – don't allow us to come together as fan groups because, look, I was just at a game. I went to the Emirates. It was an amazing day out. Obviously, I felt safe. I enjoyed it. I loved it. Same was true in October. Whether you're an every-match-going fan or a once-in-a-while-match-going fan or a traveling intercontinentally to be a match-going fan, it should be a joy. It should be a celebration. It should be a safe experience. You have a responsibility, obviously, as an individual to make that happen, but the organizers do as well. And I feel like the tribal response prevents us from having a unified demand of the people in power to be held to account.
2: 100%. It's a tale as old as time. It doesn't just happen in football, by the way. Like, um, what do lots of billionaires buy when they become billionaires? They tend to buy newspapers and media outlets. And why do or they Or just do politicians. That? <laughs> yeah, indeed. And why do they do that? Because it's a very, very good way of making us fight one another for scraps while they run off with the rest of it. Um, and, and in football obviously this applies as well. And one of the reasons the Super League protests were so powerful, and don't get me wrong, I'm not naive enough to think that's the only reason the Super League collapsed. There were some political reasons that are, uh, you know, happening corridors of power that we'll never access. Um, and just poor planning, really poor political planning for it. But th- that that was one of the few things that fans really unified over. It's it's a tale as old as time, like divide and conquer. And and you know <clears throat> when people do that, that exactly they are doing the bidding of of organisations like UEFA for them. And on one hand, I'm a little bit inclined to think that this is the thing about something like Twitter. You like you say, you get both the the quick correction, the on the ground stuff, but you also get like the tribal responses, you get all those shitty banter accounts that are horrible and deliberately spread misinformation because the only currency they engage that they they trade in is engagement and they know that will get engagement. Like stupid fucking stuff. Like videos of Liverpool fans like climbing over walls and you can't even see the stadium in the video. And they're like, oh, Liverpool fans climbing into the stadium. It's like, that's not the stadium, you dumb fuck. You can't even see the stadium. It's like, it's very clear they're in a bottleneck miles away from it. But, you know, and then people do that bidding. And there's a little bit of me that thinks, well, it's probably just a load of 14, 15-year-olds on Twitter. And I think we do underestimate the amount that, like, children (laughs) are commenting on these things. But at the same time, it's just... Again, we see it in politics, don't we? Just completely, like, saturate the space in information, misinformation, and either, you know, appeal to people's agendas or saturate the space so much that people don't care anymore. And, and it's, it's, it's very, very tiring. But, but absolutely, it absolutely allows um, those bodies like UEFA, like uh, the French police and, and things like that, to get away with this stuff. And like you say, a lot of those accounts, they know that Liverpool fans in particular, they know people will take that and run with that. They know that possibly the biggest fan base on earth is Manchester United. And they know that there are loads of United, for not just United fans, but they know that even that on its own will drive this um, and get them their clicks and their engagement. And it's it's incredibly dangerous. Um, and, and yeah, it, it just allows this stuff to continue.
1: Yeah, but I mean we did have those fun two days when the Super League news broke where UEFA were the guardians of the game. Let's never forget let's never forget that heyday. <laughs> um I mean you're absolutely right Tim and I do want to say to our 14 and 15 year old listeners you you're the smart, intelligent, thoughtful uh 14 and 15 year olds, just to be clear about that. Um you know and and look I think it ultimately it's just a shame because it's An event I'd like to attend someday, hopefully to see Arsenal and things like this make you just say, nah, it's just not worth it. And you wonder to a parent that might want to bring their child to a game, to a young person who might potentially become a football supporter. You know, you think about big events, the World Cup, the Champions League final, you know, in the NFL, the Super Bowl, whatever it is, that's the first time someone is exposed to a sport and a moment when they can be captivated by it and, and converted into it. And scenes like that, you know, that, that can't be good for UEFA either. And so I, I hope there's some soul searching, although, um, I doubt there's time, uh, between counting the money. So Clive, in terms of the actual football, I mean, Real Madrid winning this champions league has to be the most improbable thing ever. First of all, just the teams they went through in PSG, Chelsea city and Liverpool is pretty remarkable. Um, and really looking dead and buried in three of those four and Courtois keeping them from looking dead and buried in the fourth. It is a remarkable run um, and and one that I, st- I still can't really believe happened. But I have to admit, I as much as I think Liverpool were slightly the better team in this game, I don't think they were at their absolute best. And I do think that they have looked a bit tired and a bit less than themselves for a while. And I, I wonder, do you think it's really possible with the toll that the Premier League takes on clubs for these English teams to try to make a run to win the Premier League and make a run to win the Champions League? Because the Liverpool I saw against Real Madrid did not look like it had the sort of verve and energy that, that you'd expect. They they looked to me, at least, to be just a little bit off their best.
3: Yeah, Real Madrid won the league well, a month ago. Today, so they were literally cruising into this game, resting players. I think they played their a lot of their final team in their last league game, just make sure they had the game in their legs. But they came into the game full of energy. And I, I have to admit, watching Real Madrid, has almost like it's been an education, you know, um, how they've managed games, how they've used their substitutions to end games with a younger team than what they start with. You know, roll on five subs next year is going to completely transform how we look at football. Clive, for your,
1: for your mentions, were you a little worried that Danny Ceballos was going to score the final goal in the G? Yeah, I, I said that it would have been the end of you.
3: Yeah, yeah I, I, I I, actually said, um, you know, I was. I don't know if you can t- delete lots of tweets on, on Twitter. I'm not sure if it's possible yet, but, um, I'd have been hiring someone to go and find one for me <laughs> because, um, because I have been a little bit harsh on the, on the young man, uh, who came on and did a, an impression just running around after the ball for, for five, ten minutes, which he's, which he's really good at, right? So fair play to him. Um, so yeah, Real Madrid are really, um, really educated me really on how they played this game and how they had a, a form of false control when Liverpool were putting them under pressure. They were very clever in where they positioned Modric in particular to make sure they could exit and get to their three passes and then get out. And I think that spooked Liverpool, who wanted to press them, pressure on and gamble at the back. And they kept Canate busy on the right hand side, and they exit on the right hand on the left hand side, Liverpool's left, sorry. And they kept that side busy at the same time with Carvalho, and, and really clever how they used their wide men and and almost like really pinned Liverpool's. Defense who, who gamble on offsides, who gamble on on going two on two, for example, and they really stretched him out and that spooked them. All Newport needed was a goal, they didn't get the goal because they got some bloke in goal. Real <laughs> Madrid, who was really really good, and their finishing is not quite as sharp as it has been. Although he did make two, I think the Mane save and the Salah save they they really stand out. and I thought he was absolutely fantastic, and so now now the all the English fans are laughing at Liverpool just for having an Arsenal 93 season, right? So um, when, in, when really, what it comes back to Elliot and something we've spoken about already, and no doubt we'll come back to and talk about Arsenal, is what does success look like? You know, you can get 90 points and get to three cup finals, potentially two or three, two or three games away from winning all four trophies. And people are saying, basically, this is not successful. And I think um, it, it goes to tell you, I think this Liverpool team was incredibly impressive. Ran out of a little bit of juice towards the end, maybe carrying a few injuries, much like we did with Fabinho and Thiago, for example. And obviously, got a few issues up front when Salah had a little injury towards the end. All it takes is five percentile off and another team will pick your pocket. And that's what Real Madrid did. And um I thought it was a lovely game of football to watch. And one last thing I can just say: did, did anyone notice the refereeing standards being so high? You know, did you notice how the game was moving? How much time the ball was in play? How it just it just didn't seem like a controversial moment. It's just like okay, moment foul, move on, move the ball. There was an intensity with the ball went out for a throw to keep it back into play again because they know these teams are so organised. You have to catch them in, in in restarts. I just thought it was a wonderful tactical approach to really move people around and keep the ball moving, keep the ball on the pitch, and the referee bought into it. And I just thought, as an experienced watch it, I, I really enjoyed it, and I, I want to see more of those type of games in in the Premier League.
2: And I completely second that on the officiating, Clive. Like the way this um, this match just flowed, and the yeah. fact is, you know, the referee wasn't the star, wasn't looking to insert himself in the game. Every time there was a dive, he was on it. Didn't make a massive fuss. Just no, get up, son. Um,
3: yeah, exactly.
2: It, 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 did you the, see the
3: play, Did you see the Championship playoff finals yesterday? Yes, I yes, I that? did.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you
3: watch uh, John Moss? Um,
2: Manage that game. <laughs> I, you I saw that he never left the centre circle, I told you. <laughs> but it's, it, it, you, you're exactly right. And, and I think as well with, it, it, it was just a lesson. So, something, um, sorry, I'm going to pivot to like Arsenal women again here because I know people love it when I do that. It's something Jonas Iderbel's talked about a lot this season. <clears throat> something he talks about a lot is ball in play. Yeah. And he's talked about because, like in like in the Premier League, in the WSL, there isn't a multi-ball system, and he, he's very, very outspoken and critical about that. Like, why is there no multi-ball? And he he looks at like the ball in play figures, and he's like Birmingham City, right, who got relegated this year. They play in yeah. St Andrews. There's only like a thousand people there, so the ball gets lost up in the stands, and he's like the average. Time that the ball's in play for like a Birmingham City home game is about 37 minutes, whereas for wow. Arsenal it's like 60 minutes. And he's like, How can you have that big a variance between like two different teams and two different games? And like he was talking about like Tottenham as well, like Arsenal drew away at Tottenham, and he's like, Same thing there, not quite as big a stadium, but you know, the ball gets lost up in the stand, there's no multi ball. But he was saying one of the reasons he thinks that um, English teams struggle in the Women's Champions League is because they do have multi-ball, and the English teams aren't used to this. They're not used to the ball coming back straight away for a throw-in or a goal kick or something like that. Like the ball's in play for like close to seventy minutes, and he was saying that like if if you know because English teams are underperforming in the Champions League in the Women's game, and he's saying like. If, if we want to stop that, we need to do things like this and have multi-ball and, and, you know, have that, like, because he he thinks that basically it informs the intensity of the game. And what we had Absolutely. with Liverpool-El Madrid was it had, it, like, it wasn't um, an absolute, like, champagne show of football by any means, but it had an, like, I, I really enjoyed it just because it had that nice intensity to it that you're supposed to get in a final, the, the like, the impression that this is a high stakes game one goal one moment's going to decide it and it's not going to be the referee it's not going to be because it takes like one team is able to just dive and win free kicks and take two minutes over throw-ins it had a lovely flow to it and and particularly when you've got two of the best teams in europe playing against each other that is exactly what you want and you're right in the championship playoff final like john moss like i um, i know he's retiring and all that but i'm sorry like he was he was toddling like my my daughter's two <laughs> and he looked like her when she runs and because like, i spend my life at the moment saying don't run don't run. And then she falls over and <laughs> cries. And I say, I told you not to run. And that's my day on repeat. And I felt like that watching John Moss. So I was But like,
3: He was listening to you, Tim. He was <laughs> asking, run.
2: I won't run. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just I wait till she over. falls over and knocks <laughs> her front tooth out. Like my daughter did. I, I, Despite my exultations of not running. But,
3: sorry, mate, I've got to go back on. The, Jonas is bang on. The, the, when you want to differentiate levels, it's what you do at the intensity by which you have to play at, right? So the intensity levels, your technique under pressure at the intensity levels is a differentiator. And to watch two teams at Madrid and Liverpool just literally go at this game a 1,000 miles an hour and were allowed to is just tremendous because they knew that every second counted and it just leapt off the screen to me. And the game enabled them to do it. And I think sometimes in our game, we want to stop the game. We want to stop it and, and talk about a decision. No, no, no. That's not what you want to be doing. You want to be keeping the ball moving, keeping the intensity high, quick throwers, keep the ball on the pitch. That's what differentiates you. That's, that's when you find out the dopes of people who are not athletic, who are blowing, that need a rest. That's how you find them out. And the referees is to buy into what, they're act, what the game actually is. Now stop stopping it for stupidity. Let the game go. Right? So, and then you're going to find out who's truly elite. Right, so you, and if, if that disparity in the women's game exists, which I know it does, team because you wouldn't quote the numbers, that's a shocker, and it needs to change very, very quickly because teams like Arsenal can't impose themselves in the balls over the fence somewhere. Do you see what I mean? They can't impose their physicality in their elite training that they have, and so this is something that we really need to to focus on for me, particularly ball in play. This is an entertainment industry. All in play matters. Stop making people slow down restarts. Stop making goalkeepers waste time. Get players off the floor for one little issue. People are now holding their heads in the box in every single set piece and they're going down and they're allowed to do so and the referee is obliged to stop it for a head injury. These things, I didn't see these things at the weekend and I really enjoyed the game because of it.
2: And, and I know, sorry, just last thing on this. I know people might be like screaming into their headsets, like, what about like the two, three minute VAR stoppage for the Benzema goal that's disallowed for offside? In fairness, as much as I don't like VAR and VAR stoppages and stuff, in fairness, that was, t- to me anyway, that was a proper head scratcher of a decision. Like, I think that's one of those decisions that would have been correct either way. And I think also, it, I think they recognized, like, the gravity of, you know, the first goal Bang in on. the Champions League final. Bang and on and that, that's one incident where it's like, all right, I get that because, like, it, it, that, that's what happened anyway, right? First goal wins. That almost always happens in Champions League finals. So, A, I think it was genuinely a head-scratcher of a decision. And, B, I understand the caution in really wanting to get it right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and and to be fair, like, I, I I enjoyed the game. I don't think it was a sensational game, but like, I'm not someone, as you may know, who, who really ooze and ahs over goalkeepers, but Courtois was out of this world. And like, he was the difference between the two teams. I think Trent Alexander Arnold came in for some criticism. You know, I, I guess maybe it's a shot that winds up being a brilliant cross. He's a little asleep asleep at the back post. I get it. I don't know what Virgil van Dyke was doing there either, but maybe didn't see quite the best of Luis Diaz or Sadio Mane or Mohamed Salah, who for my money, Mohamed Salah hasn't looked his best for quite some time. I think it'll be interesting to see where Liverpool go from here. But like, Clive, one of the things that's so hilarious about this is now, I mean, do Liverpool, are Liverpool fans sitting there feeling like this season was a, a washout? Like, a, a, I got to assume they're crestfallen, which is totally understandable. But like, they don't win the Premier League. They don't win the Champions League. They still take home two trophies for the season and over 90 points. They won a lot of games. They got to have a lot of fun along the way. But the way it ends means that they're, they're sort of sitting there feeling miserable. And I, I, I'm just curious how you view that season. I mean, how do you view a season where you're competing for absolutely everything at an extraordinarily high level, but the two biggest trophies you were going for elude you?
3: Yeah, I think it you know I don't think it's a failure they scored 90 plus goals I mean crikey. I mean it, incredible team I think what it does say potentially you can't really answer this question without talking about Man City and Liverpool together really and you know what Man City are able to do they have won four leagues in the last five years and you know we just had a an ownership change at Chelsea and they've won 21 trophies in like 19 years I think that's the right number. And then so all of a sudden, everyone realises the money's not so clean and they're having to sell their club and the money going to charitable organisations. And people just sitting there saying, ho-hum, that's 19 years of football trophies that have gone. And I think, where do we want to go with the game? Liverpool are seen as the team that's quite intelligent, doing things organically the right way, with with a minimal minimal amount of ownership support, but something that's more recognizable versus the state teams for example and teams that have had money come in from dubious uh, circumstances and they are dictating the very heart of the game and you look at the Mbappe deal for example you have to ask yourself a question it's all fun it's all exciting when we're watching the games and I love the football and there's a morality side of the game that I'm really starting to wonder about when is there you know when are people going to actually wake up and say well what's that, what's actually happening here you know what is actually happening what's happened to chelsea they're literally were the they are the world champions they were the european champions until the other day they've literally won everything in the game and and then you question how that's been allowed to happen and so i don't want to sit here and and really criticize liverpool i do enjoy city's um I do enjoy City's football. I, w- I will say that I, I'm not. I know Tim and me have different on that. Tim gets a bit cold on some of their football, but I'm, I'm looking at City's football even more closely now because our manager seems to be trying to mirror it. So I'm trying to learn what I also could be by looking at City. And I don't. I don't run cold. And I watch it from a purely football perspective. But off the pitch, there are questions to be to be answered. They really are, and they're questions to be answered. About what we like and what we get excited about, including myself, and how it's derived. And I'm not sure football is prepared to look at itself in a full-length mirror for long enough, you know, and um, because they, they're prepared to slam us when we drop a couple of games towards the end of the season. And then really, Lord Chelsea for years and years for embarrassing us in certain games. And hardly anyone questioned where that funding has come from. Hardly anyone has questioned how their superiority in the game has been been allowed to happen. And, and I find it a bit distasteful, from my most of you. But I'm a football man, first and foremost, and I enjoy the football. And I'm sure there are many clubs with chequered past and chequered recent histories, including Real Madrid and their government funding many years ago when they bought their training go, etc., and kept them afloat. So There's a very difficult moral position for Arsenal fans and football fans to really hold but within that Liverpool deserve a huge round of applause for allowing us to have a contest because without them City would win the league by 20 points and and that's something we need to really look at
2: yeah, and well said. I, I just wanted to add on the, <clears throat> on this as well. First of all, I'd point people to a brilliant article that was in the Financial Times over the weekend by a guy called John Byrne Murdoch, who you might know because he did loads of loads of really good data stuff around COVID, like real world leading kind of um, stuff around COVID data. But he wrote an article about disparities in European football and you know, just bringing some of those, those figures to life. But what's really interesting with the Mbappe thing is the Mbappe, thing is shows the real battle that's happening at the top of European football between old money and new money so you've got clubs like Real Madrid Barcelona Manchester United Juventus none of those clubs look quite as strong as they did well I mean I mean they're strong financially none of them are successful as, as they were a few years ago and they feel like they're losing these their grip because they're losing it to new money like Chelsea, like Manchester City, like PSG and that, that's exactly what the Mbappe thing was about, right? It's about old money versus new money and that's going on at the very, very top but <clears throat> Clive's right that we should be thankful for Liverpool otherwise City would be winning the, uh, they're, they're concealing a lot of what's actually happening in English football at the moment and... um like, like, absolutely, we have to think about where this is going. And I think the wrong end of the stick that some of the the real kind of kingmakers in the game, uh, like UEFA and things, when they're thinking about Super Leagues, I think they think people want to see matches between the big teams because they're the big teams. And, and to an extent, I think that's true. But I don't think that's what it is. I think what people want is high-stakes games that are close, like the Champions League final was, like what we've just been talking about. Not like champagne football by any means, but a really tight, interesting game between two teams who are of kind of equal, <clears throat> equal, close to equal footing. I watched the Europa League final as well the week before, like I think a lot of people did. I I don't think I'd watched a second of Europa League football all season, to be honest, but Rangers-Frankfurt was a brilliant game. Two teams I knew nothing about, not excited about at all, but it was a brilliant final because it's a high stakes game between two teams of similar quality in the Europa Conference League final, Roma final, exactly the same high stakes. between. That's what I think people want. And I think we're in danger of losing that, even that to that extent. Even now, like Champions League quarterfinals are often walkovers. Look at Liverpool's route to the final. They played Real, and like it was a bit like an arm wrestle in terms of like you know Liverpool took the lead. Uh, sorry, like had like a good first leg lead, and then Real come back almost like when you're having an arm wrestle with a younger relative and you kind of let them look like they're about to beat you and then you just smash their hand down. And that, that was a Champions League semi-final and Liverpool were able to do that. We're in danger of losing even at the top end those high-stakes games. Oh,
1: Tim, I think you hit your mute or I hit your mute, sorry, right right in the middle of your, your big crescendo.
2: <laughs> oh, no, I hit mute. I'd finished. Oh, ah. oh, okay. <laughs> he just, he just it, dismissed it, it, us, us when he away. finished. <laughs> he's like, "No, I was doing the professional thing.
1: You, you, you do your job. I'll do mine." Uh, fair enough. Uh, well, I want to spend the balance of this episode talking about Arsenal. Imagine that. And and really, what all of this tells us about Arsenal, uh, Liverpool season, I think, is is particularly interesting to me. But it is sort of funny because in Real Madrid, Liverpool, you have t- a tale of two approaches because. You have this sort of meticulously constructed and praised Liverpool side that focused on value and socceronomics and age curves, which you know I love. And and they got a coach who's got extraordinary tactical noose and, and an approach to the game that's revolutionary. And they they get to the Champions League final where they meet a team that throws money around, acquired a bunch of talented players, hired a guy who loves some vibes, and they won the Champions League. <laughs> like there's multiple ways you can do it. But there's really only one way. That you can build your business. And that's by using Indeed as your hiring partner. That's right. Indeed is the one place we can attract, interview, and hire all in one place, he says, being redundant. But we're gonna tell you about a new feature today, one that I haven't talked about a little bit, and that's virtual interviews. This is a really cool feature of Indeed, and you know, interviewing. Obviously, it can be a stressful process both for the candidate and for the hirer. But with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install anything, extra plugins, or things like that. Indeed's virtual interview works right from your browser, it saves you headaches interview virtually with no downloads no purchases you can do it all in one place and after using indeed virtual interviews most employers said it saved them days of hiring time according to indeed data there's even a reliability assessment that goes along with it and of course you still have tools like instant match and remember Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner delivering Get this, four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. So sign up right now for Indeed and get a $75 credit towards your first sponsored job. Plus, earn up to $500 extra in sponsored job credits with Indeed's virtual interviews. Visit Indeed.com slash Wire to learn more. Claim your credits at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Indeed.com slash Wire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed Clive. Is that enough of that? Indeed. Well done. Uh, Okay. So Arsenal. That is the club with the name and the title. And I've been thinking about something. Go back to 2015, 2016. You remember the season? Remember anything particular about that season?
2: Nope. (laughs) But Tim will. (laughs) Leicester
1: City won the title. Ring the bell? 15-16,
2: they won
1: it. Uh, 15-16. Yeah.
2: That's what I said. And no one can prove
1: differently. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Leicester won the title and Arsenal finished second. And I remember the discourse, the narrative, progress. We finished second. It's progress. And indeed, finishing second is progress from what we had done. Even though we had failed to win the title, it was painful, but it was progress. Now in 2016-17, we continued that progress, accumulating four more points and scoring 12 additional goals, securing a much improved goal difference. So again, the next season, we continued the progress, didn't we? More points, more goals, better goal difference. Ah, Arsenal finished fifth the next season. Because other teams had improved too. And those other teams that had improved passed us and left us, where we find ourselves now, adrift from Champions League football for quite a long time. And Clive, this leads me to the question of what we really can achieve going forward. We did improve this season. We improved on points we improved on goals, and next season we need to do the same. But as Liverpool has found out, that's not enough. You have to not only improve, but you have to improve and then hope the other clubs don't. And with United having the resources they do, and Liverpool having resources and intelligence in the way they build, and Chelsea not yet out of the picture, and Newcastle coming into it, I'm curious how we should think about progress for next season because I've seen a lot of people saying, well, next season it has to be Champions League or we've failed. And what my initial instinct when I hear that is, of course, that makes sense. What if we get 80 points and don't get it? What if we get 82 points into it? Now, look, at at some point, you're going to accumulate enough points where you're going to get it. But how can we think about what is progress and what is realistic in the face of an exceedingly competitive league and the continuing growth of the group of clubs that can compete with us?
3: Yeah, so let's set the goals from here right now, right? So the goal is going to be the Champions League for the club. So everything needs to be – that's the mission statement. So how are we going to get there? And then you look at – which I'm sure you've already done, Elliot. You look at the data around the season and what we're doing regarding um, pressures and, and shots and creation. And and you can say to yourself, okay, there are some quite easy things that we need to solve. You know, shot conversion, chance conversion. I'm not sure the metrics may – I'm sure you know them better than me. I might be using the wrong terminology. But we are getting the ball into good areas, and we need to do more in those areas to make sure we score more goals. You know, Liverpool scored ninety-two goals, or sorry, ninety-four goals this season, and Arsenal uh, sitting there on sixty-one. I mean, that's just um, too big, right? So, um, and we need to we need to find fifteen, twenty goals in my opinion, and. And so we need to not just buy a striker, but I do think that is quite simplistic. Um, improving those forward areas, but also work out what you need to, what you want to achieve from a um, bit more of a theme. And uh, our our response to adversity needs to be something we can recover from, you know, in a better way when we go one nil down. That's something we, it's a theme we really need to fix. How we play against um, big presses. Is something we need to decide if we want to fix it. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we physically enough in certain parts of the pitch? Are we going to ignore that for another year or are we going to improve that again? We have made some recent steps. You, you know, I, I would like to see a little bit more physicality and ingenuity on the ball. And I'd like to see a bit more presence in jewels in the top end of the pitch, particularly centrally, that makes defenders do different things. And if you focus on these themes which are clear to improve based on bad experiences and the data that's in front of us. If you focus on these things, then you're now focused on development and coaching and making sure that your game model is appropriate for how you want to play and who what your position is. And I think from a coaching perspective, we're not bad. I think we can improve in some of the management decisions, shall we say, on certain moments, particularly when we... Have players out and tim and i could weekend i'm going to quote was the lines that he that he said and i i love this line it's one of the two or three that's stood out to me this season from tim and other people and it was there needs to be a lot less noise about the players beneath the first 11 and i thought that's really really it captures my thinking a lot it's about how we apply the players into the first level when we have to rotate. And next year, we're going to have a bigger squad. And this is going to be one of the biggest challenges. We're going to have five substitutions, three games a week, a bigger squad. Managing rotation is something I think we can improve on. And we need to improve on it. So if you focus on these themes, I think, Elliot, you're you're focusing on what it could be, the end thing, the end result. I'm focusing on the themes and how we can build to that end result. Not ignoring the themes, not ignoring the things we don't do so well, and you focus on those, I think we'll get to the place where you want to be, which is higher up the table.
1: sure, it's just I can already picture the debates right now. should the manager go, should these should the players all be sacked? should the club be folded because we finished fifth again, and you look and you say, we got to seventy seven points, or we got seventy six points and we scored eighty goals, or you know, and again,'m I'm, I'm making up numbers that may statistically speaking, really suggest you're going to land where you want to land. But I do think the reality, Tim, is that as I pointed out with the Leicester season and the subsequent one, you can get better, play better, have a better goal difference, have more points, have more goals. And the teams around you can do more than you did to get better than you did relatively. And you can find yourself slipping back. And I guess it leads me to ask you, Tim, Like this is a painful question to ask. Can Arsenal still win the big trophies? Can Arsenal be a team that can go on and win a Premier League and a Champions League? Um, Liverpool did it once in this run, and they had to be near 100 points in multiple seasons to get it once, and that was up against City. Newcastle can, if they wish, produce a City-like project. Um, you know, Manchester United spend enough to produce that. They've just been dumb. If they ever get smart, who knows, God forbid that happens, but who knows what would happen. So, I mean, what is it going to feel like chasing success over the next few seasons and even decade of football? Can Arsenal still win the big trophies? What, what should our expectations be? I still find myself saying a club of our size should expect yada, yada, yada. Am I outdated in my thinking?
2: Yeah I mean yeah maybe like the thousand foot view I think vis-a-vis chat like basically if you can get to a point where you're challenging to win the uh, the Premier League you'll probably be good enough to challenge to win the Champions League as well. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. I think those two things probably just about go hand in hand at this point in time Um, and this is why we reference Liverpool so much right because they're the ones with the most similar financial model to us And, and you're right they've had to be perfect absolutely perfect the thing is I guess from an Arsenal perspective it's been a long time since we even really challenged for the title like like 15-16 we did 2007-2008 we did but like we, we fell away badly at the end of those seasons so when we went into like April it wasn't really on at that point so it, it's been a while since we've been there at the end. So really, like I do think to an extent, those expectations have been recalibrated because we were desperate for fourth this year. Whereas if you look like six, seven years ago, we were like I remember my mates holding a a, uh, a banner, w- which I actually slightly chided them for around about ten years ago. <laughs> this picture of them in the Tollington holding this banner that just says third or fourth place. Wow. and and because like that felt like a fall of status to be to be chasing that whereas this season like we have treated fourth like a trophy because essentially you've got to find excitement in football wherever you can get it and I, i wrote an article about this last august actually where i kind of said you know we might have to like recalibrate and and i think that does happen naturally anyway um, you understand what you're capable of and what's probably important at this stage, but but going beyond that, you know can we get to a stage where we're doing more than chasing for fourth and trying to win a cup? Um, and, and I'd just say as a sidebar actually, if you look around Europe, the cups are where it's been happening. This year, it, it didn't quite happen like that in England. This year, though, Leicester won it last year. But you look at like Real Betis winning the Copa del Rey in Spain, and and in France, like the cups have all provided the intrigue. Uh, even the Europa League this year, you know, to have a final like um, Rangers Frankfurt, whereas for the last few years, you've had like an Arsenal or a Man United or a Chelsea in there or something like that. Um, so, the, like the cups have provided the intrigue and you know frankly we've become a cup team over the last uh, not quite decade or so and and we might have to kind of accept that a little bit but if we're if we're thinking about god can we can we ever get beyond that really i think the thing we're probably looking at is what happens to city and liverpool when klopp and guardiola go While those two managers are in play, no, we're not getting near it. It's as simple as that. Like I don't think anyone is really, Um, unless I mean to be fair, Liverpool finished fourth last year because they had a few injuries. Well, that's understating it. They had a lot of injuries, and that's kind of all you can hope for with them. With even City, like losing like three centre backs, who cares? They'll probably still win the league really what we've got to be building towards and what I imagine we are building towards a little bit is, okay, let's build up a kind of young team and in two or three years, when Klopp and Guardiola are gone, maybe the Premier League's a little bit more of a wild west. Now, to be honest, Manchester United and Chelsea are certainly financially better positioned for that, albeit there's a lot of uncertainty around Chelsea because we don't really know what their new owners are going to do and things like that. But that, to me, is like the best hope That effectively like City have built their entire club around Guardiola and at the moment while he's there that's working absolutely perfectly however there is the kind of well what's the contingency when he goes and you know we've seen Arsenal and Man United struggle with this when you when your club is necessarily at times built around one kind of um you know monolith really what what happens when that monolith goes and i i think it's the same for liverpool with klopp because the reality for both clubs is they will not be able to replace those coaches with better or even equal coaches the next guys that come into those jobs are going to be inferior as coaches more than likely because we're probably talking about the two best coaches in the world. Well, we're certainly talking about the two best coaches in the world. So what, what happens when they have a slightly inferior coach who has all of the history of his predecessor upon him? Like I I say, we've been there. We're still there, right? Manchester United are there worse than ever, nearly 10 years after, after their monolith left. So that that's, that's the glimmer of hope. I think Um, But the reality is I think like Liverpool and City, while they've got the setups they've got, are probably not reachable Um, and, and we will have to recalibrate and we will have to think about fourth being probably about the ceiling, maybe third in a good year and winning some cups and winning the Europa League. You know, trying to win the FA Cup, we haven't won the League Cup in nearly thirty years. I know it's not the biggest trophy, but that one would be quite nice. I'd, I'd love, like, you know, Liverpool have won both domestic trophies. I'd, I'd love a yeah. bit of that again. I've seen Arsenal do that, but thirty years ago, you know that that to me and and like that that w- the reality is that those will be and are our expectations. And to be fair, I think those have been our expectations for a while now.
1: Yeah, and I have to admit, and it gives me no pleasure to say this, that it's why I can see a path to the Europa League being fun because we don't get the chance to be the bully very often. We can bully teams in the group stage of the Europa League. We can play players that maybe we don't get to see a lot or young players or, you know, rotate the squad a bit while doing it. And then we can have a reasonable expectation that we should win it. I think one of the things that makes the discourse. Online and really anywhere about Arsenal so hard, Clive, is anything I say we should do, someone can rightfully say that's not fair. If I say we should be winning the league, someone can rightfully say, come on, that's not fair. You can't expect us to compete with what's out there. Okay, we should be winning a Champions League. I think people can hand wave that and say, ah, you can't expect that. But I can say we should win the Europa League and no one can tell me I'm wrong about that. It is a reasonable target that we can shoot for. Now, I know that a cup competition is a crap shoot, and so anything can happen, but it's a target you can set. It's a target that's achievable and achieving it does get you Champions League. And the reason that's also important, Clive, is that like I was thinking about this. City, United, Chelsea, Liverpool, Arsenal, Tottenham, Newcastle maybe throw another club in there of your pick. That cluster of teams is all going to be going toe-to-toe with each other for the next many years. And so the idea that the days were we just sort of feel entitled to be one of the top four teams in England and should be, that's gone. Realistically, with that cluster of teams, with all the wealth they have and all the capabilities they have, we should have a cycle where we're really good and maybe for four or five years we're in the top four and maybe even competing near the top. And then maybe another cycle of four or five seasons where we've fallen out of that and we're trying to get back. And so I think it's realistic that in any given decade now, maybe we're in the Champions League half the time or a third of the time. And that is a really hard thing for any of us to accept or process, especially if you are part of a generation that saw us in the Champions League for over 20 years consecutively. I mean, it's really incredible to, to think about it that way. So do we have to adjust that and accept that? And does that maybe make the Europa League as pathetic as this sounds, sort of a fun opportunity to look at something that we should go bully, we should go be the big club, we should go try to win and and be able to win and thereby also get ourselves back into that Champions League.
3: Yeah, I, I, you know, I would love to see Arsenal win in Europe. I I haven't seen that, you know. Well, I I shouldn't say that because I was there in Copenhagen in 94 and that was one of my, probably my best ever experience from watching Arsenal live. One of the best anyway that I can remember. And um, so, I would love to see Arsenal in Europa League. That would be absolutely fantastic for the club, for how the club is perceived. To see us on the on the European stage in a final and actually, you know, because Baku was terrible, you know, absolutely terrible, and um, so that would be really, really a nice thing. Um, I look at the P teams in there. I just look quickly in Roma, Man United, Benfica, Dynamo Zagreb, Rangers, Lazio. Braga in part one potentially um, I think we should be okay but then you're going to get teams dropped down let's see what happens well, I don't I don't perceive all this bullying thing football can change very very quickly on an injury at the wrong time and I think sometimes we look at the game we see the landscape that's actually there today and we think well that's it we're done we're in trouble well a couple of years ago Liverpool had some injuries they barely made the top four We've got World Cup coming this year we have a variable that we don't do not understand how people are going to return for that competition and everyone's going to be in it and all the top teams got players in it how they're going to come back what sort of shape how they're going to assimilate to the league how they're going to refocus it's going to be a completely different season this year and we and we don't know what we're going to see you know we've got people like Phil and Newcastle that are showing ambition a little bit in the transfer market quite early. Based on rumour, conjecture, for example, I know Villar bought uh, Pukar Kamarian, who's a good player, good free transfer. Um, we'll see what he looks like. You know, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens here. And I, I think it's an unknown year. I think it's it's a total. We had an unknown period with COVID in the recent couple of years. We have had a pretty standard year this year because we had a full attendance for the whole season. We're going to the first ever Winter World Cup next year. And so we have another variable thrown in, which completely throws everything up in the air. We have five sub rule coming in, which is a new era of football where coaches can actually influence far more than they ever can. They can make that amount of change. I think it's going to be very exciting. And I'm, I'm, my brain is much more in the in the unknown and the possible versus, oh my gosh, it's going to be, this is it for us now. And I think Let's just focus on ourselves and improving some of the themes I spoke about and see where we end up because we are further on the cycle of rebuild and knowing who we are to some of these teams who are just about to press the accelerator button.
1: Yeah, it's well said. Look, I I think where I'm at with this is my worry becomes about demand and what that demand does – for the people that spend the money at the club. And what I mean by that Clive is right now, you know, we have an owner that we know is willing to put money in, but we also know that we have an owner who doesn't believe in just throwing money at chasing success, right? I mean, this isn't a Manchester city situation. This isn't a Roman Abramovich Chelsea situation. And to some extent, the perception has been for a long time. You need to be in the champions league. We need to be, if not winning titles, pursuing them, you know, keep the stature of the club up, so on and so forth. My only concern would be if we arrive at a place where the group gets bigger and Newcastle comes into it, and now it's suddenly seen as sort of like a big six or seven, and you know the goal is really just to stay in Europe actually, and then the ambitions sort of change, and suddenly the debate is, well, as long as we're in Europe altogether it's a success, and you just see that sort of the diminishing of expectations becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy where the club behaves. In a way that matches what the expectations have become, which is as long as we spend in a manner and recruit in a manner where we stay in Europe, that's sufficient. And Tim, I'm wondering if you think that expectations do sort of determine behavior in the sense that. If a club feels it has to pursue a title and it has to be in the Champions League and it has to try to win it, it's going to have to do different things than if it feels that the goal is stay in Europe. Now, maybe I'm overemphasizing the role the fans play in this, but I'm wondering if you think that the changing landscape, the growing group of clubs that are competing with each other for these places will lead to the club being a little more circumspect and saying, you know what, we'd like to win a title, we'd like to win all the big trophies, but what we're really doing here." Is we're building a project that's designed to keep us in Europe, and we'll see what happens from there. Do, do you do you think that there may be a misalignment between what the fans demand and believe we should be going for, but what the club may actually see as sufficient progress and success?
2: Potentially, but um, I also think the manager is is a is a massive, massive part in this. And where Liverpool, for example, a, a big part of why Liverpool are where they are, like. You know, F- FSG have done some good stuff. They did some pretty bad stuff before <laughs> Klopp came in and Klopp was the driver for it, right? And and the thing I think, like, like, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not sure whether I'd call it complacency in the sense of the word that, oh, they'll be all right qualifying for Europe, like the Cronkies, I mean, like, yeah, maybe. I think it's it's been more about them not having their eye on the ball but the, the thing that gives me pause on that is I don't think Arteta will accept that and I don't think he is accepting that. Like, I do think, um, you know, for for the flaws and the learning processes and things like that, I think this is somewhere where Arteta does communicate this very, very well. And I believe him when he talks about, like, You know, this isn't where we want to be. Like, this is a step on the journey, but it's not the final destination. And he's very, very pushy and very public about what he wants in transfer windows and things like that. And, like, you know, maybe the owners shouldn't need that. Maybe our owners do need that. But at the moment, I think we have that with the manager. I do like, let's say we'd got fourth this season. I've no doubt in my mind that Arteta would have been like, right, how do we get higher? How do we, like, how do we get a foothold here and on, you know, on the route to going to? Like, I think he's extraordinarily ambitious. I really do. Um, and so I, I yeah. And, and look, maybe the next manager isn't. Maybe we get another manager who's like, yeah, all right, I'll just go for fourth, and that will be all right. Um, and and look, the the fact that Arsenal have put their trust in Arteta suggests that they don't mind that much when he goes out in public and says, no, we need to be much better. We need players. We need you know, resources and things like that. So, you know, he's obviously not necessarily rubbing them up the wrong way when he says that. Um, In in our case, it probably is going to be necessarily a bit more manager-driven than, say, someone like Man City. Like Liverpool, I think it's largely manager-driven. And FSG have done, you know, maybe what Arsenal did under Wenger for years and just said, ah, okay, we've got the right guy here. We can, like, let him guide a lot of this maybe that's a little bit of an unfair characterization but or a bit of a simplification but um like necessarily for us and I think it probably is going to be manager driven and whether he's capable of getting us there or not I really do think Arteta will and is pushing um for that
1: yeah and and let me just say this right I think looking at this window is going to be an interesting indicator in not the manager's ambitions. We know what that that looks like. But whether the club is desperate for success. Because what I mean is, if we get Gabriel Jesus and Yuri Tielemans, I think those are good players and I think they make us better. And I think adding those players to what we already have, we will go into next season right about where we are now. Probably a good shout for top four. Not a guarantee to be there, but definitely fighting for it. But if they got Tielemans and Gabriel Jesus and Tammy Abraham, and Chouameni, or and Serge Gnabry, and, you know, pick another midfielder. Then you're saying, wow, we're hungry for this. We're going for more. We're going not just to get into the top four, but to plant a flag there as a base camp to go on and achieve something more. And so maybe part of the reason I had a slight allergy to the Enketia and Elneni re-signing news is because I viewed it through the lens of, we're going to get those two signings. We're going to stick with some of the more cost-effective solutions that are internal, and we're going to go rerun this season a little stronger, trying to claw our way up a little higher, whereas the, the big move, the going and getting those extra two, that really drives the project forward and really makes you a, a threat may not be happening. But again, that's all going to be determined over the next few months, not the next few hours or days. So Clive, you can have the final word on this. I I do agree that Arteta strikes me as someone who is not going to oversee a project that is hamstrung by restrictions that say the limit of our ambition is to maintain a European place. Um, But he also doesn't get to write the checks. So how do you see it?
3: Uh, well, listen, I'll give an insight into the podcast. Sometimes I I will type in there, can I have a quick answer on this? But you and Tim just nailed it perfectly. I think um, Arteta is where he's good. Upward management, he seems to have it, right? So and I agree with, with Tim's point around ambition. He's not here to play around. And, and I think it's an incredibly important summer to understand the identity of what the Cronkies really stand for. Because what we did last summer we, had, we decided to pivot completely and get rid of some of the high earners and go young and reposition the squad for the future and increase the squad value. I'm thinking, yep, yeah, that's great. You've done some of the fun, the foundation work. The next layer is about quality. and Actually, as you said there, defining who we are. And some of the names of those signings will say, actually, d- tell us how far we want to go. Are we going to add more players to develop or are we going to add some quality at the 25-year-old age bracket that's ready to explode and I think this is the moment now to really understand and learn about the cronkeys because for me I I think we're still learning I'm not quite sure of what they want to be do you know what I mean and how far they're willing to push this out we can all see that a self sustaining model is not going to work any longer we're going to need some financial support and based on our earlier conversations so this is I, I get excited about transfer windows anyway but I'm more excited about this one and I do take on board your point about El Elneny and Enketia because that makes me go just a, a slight intake of breath, even though I can see it flinchy and, and squad-wise why it, it's the right thing to do to get control. I have a slight intake of breath to say, mm, I hope this is not a signal of a lack of ambition. You know what I mean? And I I totally get where you are. And um, So, yeah. <laughs> Watch on. News now, scrolling, refreshing. This is what we do now for the next month or so to try and find out who we are and how we're going to mesh this all together.
1: Yeah, it's a sign of ambition either one way or the other. And like, again, we can have a very nice summer where I like the players we bring in, but maybe be left with a sense that the ambition for what we want to achieve is limited, at least in this time frame. Or we can have the kind of window where it delivers a clear message. Arsenal intend to be a big threat. Um, and again, just to be clear, you can sign 10 players, and they can all stink, and you can be worse. None of this is a guarantee. Um, Eddie and Kedia could have a 23-goal season next season. So we can't predict the future, but we, we can read tea leaves based on certain moves and say, this kind of indicates we're doing this, or this kind of indicates we're doing that. What's clear is it's getting harder to just control your destiny. And as a final point, what I mean by that is there didn't used to be so many good teams in the Premier League. And if you were ambitious and you went after it, you could really move yourself up that ladder in a very clear and very effective way. The way it is developing in the Premier League now, we can be ambitious and we can make good moves and we can still fall behind because you know, much like we say the other team gets to do tactics too, the other clubs get to do squad building too. And more of them now are not only knowledgeable about how to do that, but have the resources to do it effectively. So these are fun times to be a football supporter, in a way, because it's unpredictable. There's more to analyze. There's more ups and downs. It's not as linear and obvious where things are going, but it's more challenging because your piece of the pie is more in jeopardy than maybe it once was. So we'll see how that plays out. We'll have another pod in the next few days. I know. Um, the jubilee situation coming up in england and there's going to be a few bank holidays i think thursday and friday and so we'll we'll try to figure out something scheduling wise but we'll get something out for you might be a little bit light on content just for the next four or five days but i'm back home over the weekend and things will be returning to normal so normal service will be restored tim's on twitter at stoberto thanks tim
2: my pleasure as always
1: Clyde's on twitter at Clyde pfc thanks Clyde. thank you very much my name is Elliot Smith. You can block Twitter, Yankee Gunner. We love you, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, transfer window new. No.